This show may contain my tips for making money on Bitcoin. It won't. It also may contain explicit language, and it really might. It's Tuesday, June 4th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. President Trump was in the UK, old blighty. And there, he stood next to Theresa May, who is leaving in three days. So on this, her pre-anti-penultimate day in the job, she asked to cavort with Donald Trump. And what do you know? He does not even evoke London calling. No, guess who called? And as you know, Mexico called. They want to meet. Mexico called. Hi, it's Mexico. I mean, I guess if Tim Cook is Tim Apple, then President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador might be called by Trump. President Manny Mexico. Manny Mexico's online too. Hi, this is Donald America. I make fun. You want to know why? Because it's hard to take this shit seriously. The first question that the pair of world leaders was asked was this, which came from an actual reporter, but could have come from the mouth of the Worldwide Wrestling Federation's journalist, Mean Gene Okerlund. And to you, Prime Minister, do you think that Sadiq Khan is a stone-cold loser? Sounds better with the accent, doesn't it? Mom, would you say this blessed plot, this earth, this realm, this England, should also be referred to as this shithole country, ma'am? So, there's a very important question. Mayor Sadiq Khan's possible loserdom. Sorry, stone-cold loserdom. Actually, wouldn't lukewarm loserdom be the greater insult? Well, anyway, Donald Trump answered this way. You're talking about the mayor of London. Is that who you said? Yes. Well, I think he's been a uh, not very good mayor from what I understand. He's done a poor job. Crime is up. A lot of problems. Okay, now this is my favorite topic I mentioned it before. I got to do it again because he keeps mentioning it. Yes, crime is up. Murder is up in London. Two levels below that of the United States. Knife crime is this huge topic in England. And no doubt it caught Trump's attention. Knife crime has no pun intended spiked. Knife homicides in all of England and Wales were at the highest they've been since 1946. Do you know what they were for the last year for which there are stats? There were 285 knife murders. In the United States, there were 14,415 firearm homicides. True, the U.S. has five times the population of England and Wales, but five times 285 is 1,400, not 14,000. But I guess Trump wouldn't note any of that. But I do wonder if less than one knife homicide a day in your country makes a mayor there a stone-cold loser, what does 12 gun homicides by one perpetrator make the president? On the show today, I spiel about Castor Semenya. Will she, won't she run? Should she, shouldn't she run? But first, let me play you this exchange that took place in 2018 General Joseph Dunford, chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, was being questioned by Senator Angus King about the war in Yemen, and the senator pressed the general about the extent to which the United States has its fingerprints on what is the bloodiest war in the world today. Senator, I will. I'll reply for the record, but what what I would say here this morning is we are not at all involved in what we describe as the kill chain. So we're not involved in what targets to but, strike. But my concern is that we can say that, but if we're, if we're doing uh, 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 intelligence and refueling, we've got our hands on this thing. We're, we've got our fingerprints on it. And we, can't, we can't then say, well, we don't know what they're going to do with that fuel we put in their jets. Okay. 
the kill chain. That is an interesting concept. And it struck me that the U.S. can define it however it likes to either leave fingerprints or to erase them. It further struck me that we could do that in general when it comes to accurate accounting of civilian casualties and military engagements that we're involved in. There is one man who is at the center of most government efforts to accurately account for casualties attributed to the United States. When when I say he's at the center, it's more accurate to say he was at the center. Larry Lewis was the State Department's senior advisor on civilian harm. He is now here on The Gist to describe his old job and what the U.S. could do, if it wanted to, to get more accurate numbers on the costs of war. Hey, listener, you may have heard via your earbuds, car stereo, smart speaker, or immersive shower sound system that podcasts are the future. We at Slate think so, too, which is why we're hosting Slate Day in New York City this Saturday, June 8th. The day starts with a performance by Ms. Cracker of RuPaul's Drag Race fame. We've got pop culture trivia where you can join Slate's own writers, a play date for kids organized by our parenting podcast, Mom and Dad Are Fighting and You Know Hit Parade, that podcast about the biggest hits in pop and music. They are going to have a dance party. Of course, we will have panels too, including mine, titled The Art of Podcasting with Mike Pesca. And my esteemed guests are to include Manoush Zamarodi, the host of a Radiotopia podcast, Adam Davidson, founder of Planet Money, who's gone off on his own new podcasting venture with Sony Music, and Nick Kwa, who is kind of the, the dean of podcast media, media writing about podcasts. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets. Slate.com slash live. See you on Saturday. The United States of America has conducted 108 airstrikes in Somalia since 2017. Around 800 Somalians have been killed. And according to the official United States statistic, of these 800 Somalians killed, the number of innocent civilians is zero. Again, zero, one less than even one civilian killed. How could this be? Well, one reason is the United States has a deep and abiding uninterest in actually and accurately counting civilian casualties. I understand why in an abstract way, and yet the details of it, as I looked into it, was quite surprising. And so many of the details seem to center on the person of Larry Lewis, who is the director of the Center for Autonomy and Artificial Intelligence at the Center for Naval Analysis. He was basically the State Department's count the civilians guy until they fired him. I can think of no better expert to shed light on this subject than Larry Lewis. Welcome. Thanks for joining me. It's great to be here. Larry, do you like baseball? I confess I don't follow baseball. So in baseball, I do. They have a statistic for everything, but they're really impressive. Like there's this thing called pitch framing, how the catcher behind the plate receives the ball, angles the ball to convince the umpire that it was a strike when maybe it shouldn't be. I mean, it just blows your mind the amount of care, attention, genius that goes into calculating such a statistic. Yet when it comes to counting how many people were killed by a bomb, which seems a little bit easier, somehow we're behind the curve. How can this be? So what you see a lot right now is, is Somalia and then Raqqa and Mosul. 
And the U.S. doesn't have boots on the ground in any of those places. So they're doing airstrikes and other kinds of remote uh, uses of force. So there's no one to go to the site afterwards and do an assessment. So oftentimes, you'll ha- if you have an aircraft doing an airstrike, they will have pictures or video. And then there are other things you can use, human intelligence, signals intelligence. But it's also important to say these are limited. So they get you something, but they're not the whole picture. Mm-hmm. Is one of the reasons why it's hard to get an accurate estimate that people high up in the Pentagon don't want to get an accurate estimate? I would say that it's less about willful misunderstanding and more about ignorance. What the military had assumed for civilian casualties was you, you'd have a case where a military finds a military target, valid military target, they engage it, so they do an airstrike or something. And then there are civilians that were unobserved in the area, and that's how civilian casualties happen. That's how a lot of people think civilian casualties occur. But if you look at the data, the data shows something different. About half the time, it's not that at all. Instead, the military sees what it thinks is a valid military target, engages it in the belief that it's a valid military target, but it turns out later those were civilians that were misidentified. Mm-hmm. And the way you fix that problem is very different than the collateral damage problem. Is, is, are we investing in the technology that does that just as we invest in the technology that counts as effective weaponry? Great point. You know, we often hear, not just the U.S. government, lots of governments say this. We do everything possible to avoid civilian casualties. And the data says there's more we can do to prevent civilian casualties. And one of them is looking at innovative uses of technology. And that can be a wide variety of things. I'm working on artificial intelligence, and a lot of people are scared about the use of of artificial intelligence in military operations. But I can tell you, as as the civilian casualty guy, there there are specific ways that artificial intelligence could be used to better protect civilians on the battlefield. Now, let's zoom out a little bit, and let's say you had to, I don't know, maybe you've been in this position, you had to convince the most hard-ass general in the Pentagon why your numbers are helpful to him. So it's not someone who donates to Amnesty International. It's not someone who naturally says, oh, we don't want to cause harm in the world. It's perhaps the kind of person, real or imagined, who says, I have one mission, it's to kill the bad guys, that's all I care about. Make the case to that guy that knowing civilian casualties still can help his job ultimately. All right. I have done that before. <laughs> so a couple a couple different arguments. So, so talking to, to people who are skeptics, they generally have one of two arguments. Mm-hmm. One is that better protecting civilians means that military operations will be less effective. To that, I go to Gershwin. He said, it ain't necessarily so. <laughs> and Fortunately, I have lots of data. So, you know, at CNA, we love data. um, And I've managed to get a lot of it from real-world operations. So I can test these questions. Remember, I talked about two basic mechanisms for civilian casualties. There's the collateral damage mechanism and then the misidentification mechanism. So if, if half of your cases are misidentification, then what's happening is you're killing civilians and you're not neutralizing your military target. So if you can reduce civilian casualties, you actually improve your targeting accuracy. That's sort of an abstract argument, but I actually have operational data showing rates of civilian casualties and rates of military targeting success 
that they reinforce each other. Mm-hmm. So, so that's one argument that you're going to be better off in getting the targets that you want, General, if you pay more attention to civilian casualties. Hmm. The the other argument that I've seen, you know, it's less of a, an issue in air campaigns, but it was really a big issue in Afghanistan, is that better protecting civilians puts troops in danger. Again, the facts don't support this argument. Again, I have data showing that uh, risk to troops actually went down at the same time that this different kinds of tactics were used. So the, those two basic arguments tend to fuel most of the resistance to trying harder for civilian casualties. And if you use data to, to look at those things, neither of them really hold. You hear that it is true that the, uh, the, the ISIS caliphate in terms of the ground they control has uh, been beaten back. ISIS is an idea and an operational force maybe hasn't. But you do hear it proffered that the United States took the gloves off uh, I think this means letting the generals have more say with strikes or commanders on the ground have more say with strikes as opposed to going back to the Pentagon. But it'll, it has at least been intimated that also a greater disregard for civilian casualties correlates to, uh, quote unquote, winning the fight against ISIS. Do you have anything to say about that? So my concern about that is that you might have quicker success in the near term. But we ought to also have to think about the long game. So why did ISIS form in the first place? It's because we were in Iraq before, and there was al-Qaeda in Iraq. There was another you know, insurgency terrorist group. And basically, it wasn't necessarily the U.S. It was the Iraqis that took the gloves off. And they you know, mistreated the population out in the West, the Sunnis. And that led to grievances, unresolved grievances that just festered. And it became a petri dish that allowed the growth of ISIS. So we may think, well, it's it's expedient to, as you say, take the gloves off. But you know, if you look at history, you know, Iraq is just one example. I could I could bring up a bunch of others. But if if you if you take a heavy-handed approach, you actually can hurt yourself in the long term. Larry Lewis is an expert in lethal autonomy, reducing civilian casualties, identifying lessons from current operations, counterterrorism. He was the State Department's senior advisor on civilian harm and is currently the director of the Center for Autonomy and Artificial Intelligence at the CNA. You can't take that away from him, to quote another Gershwin lyric. Thank you so much, Larry. Great to be here. And now the spiel. Castor Semenya will be allowed to race without taking medication to suppress her testosterone. This is what the Swiss Federal Supreme Court ruled. They overturned a ruling that would have forced her to take medication to suppress her natural levels of testosterone or be banned from racing. Now, if you don't know Castor Semenya, she's the greatest women's 800-meter runner in the world. And woman is correct. If you have to adhere to only two narrow definitions of gender, male or female, as sport does, she is female. 
the problem is, we're realizing more and more, is that there aren't only two categories. Semenya has hyperandrogenism, which means, among other things, that her body naturally produces more testosterone than a typical woman's body does. And testosterone correlates to athletic performance in a lot of ways. There are many, many arguments for letting Castor run. There is really one argument against letting her run, so I will take that argument first, and it is this. She has an unfair advantage over women who don't have her condition. Now, you might find fault with the word unfair in unfair advantage. You might find fault with advantage, but the statement has merit. Producing more testosterone is an advantage in athletic competitions which require short burst muscle use. Semenya is the gold medalist from Rio in 2016 in those Olympics, and hyperandrogenism means that she does have more testosterone. By the way, the silver medalist in Rio also has hyperandrogenism, and the bronze medalist has been barred from competition because she won't take drugs to get her testosterone levels below what they define as acceptable levels, likely due to her hyperandrogenism or a similar condition. We're not sure how prevalent hyperandrogenism is. The best estimates are around 5% of women have it. So if you use these figures, the odds of three women, like the three women on the medal stands, randomly plucked from the population having hyperandrogenism is about 1 in 10,000. Of course, the odds of three men randomly plucked from the population all being taller than six foot seven inches is more unlikely than even one in 10,000. Yet that is exactly the case with the Golden State Warriors and the Toronto Raptors. The fact is that success in certain sports selects for extreme naturally occurring genetics and physiognomy. So why do we regard one set of genes as gifts that enable certain sporting heroes to make millions of dollars? and another set to be a scandal, to be banned by the court of arbitration for sport. It's an argument you hear a lot. You also hear that testosterone doesn't make you great, greatness makes you great, or greatness plus effort. Yes, yes, but testosterone certainly is an advantage at elite levels. In fact, every synthetic steroid's purpose is to boost the body's creation of testosterone. But let's go back to why we punish some genes but celebrate others. Isn't that unfair? Maybe it is. But the reason is at least worthy of debate, and it's that we're not talking about any genetic advantage in running the women's 800 meters other than the genetic advantage that goes to the definition of the sport, the women's 800 meters. Again, Castor Semenya, she's a woman, of course she is. But in the rest of society, the cost of acknowledging another human being by the gender they want is pretty much nothing. I mean, there really is no harm in almost any other walk of life for a person who has hyperandrogenism or who is intersex to identify themselves by one gender or another or some fluid gender, there's no harm for everyone else to say, fine, we accept that. They just need not to be horrible. They just need to share a bathroom and maybe share some support. But sport's different. When we define a sport as the women's 800 or the 100 or the 61 kilo power lift, there are women with differences of sexual development, that's the general term, DSD. There are women with DSDs whose performance are affected by that status. They have advantages that women who don't have elevated levels of testosterone do not enjoy. So the analogy to tall basketball players is inexact. Being a tall person helps in basketball, like having highly elevated levels of testosterone helps in many sports. But there is no rule against being tall in basketball. There is a rule against a man 
playing in women's sports. The proper analogy would be something like this. There is a Korean basketball league, some others too, where they have height limits. What if there were a naturally occurring condition which would allow a player to be measured as under the bar to qualify under the height limits, but to play at a taller height? All right, maybe the better analogy is to arm length. Perhaps players short enough to play in the league have exceptional wingspan. And this would perhaps test the rule. The exact mechanism doesn't matter. What matters is that, yes, there are all sorts of advantages that occur naturally. But when one goes right to the definitional line of the sport, it invites a conundrum. And that is my position with Semenya. I am not here to say she should or shouldn't run. I am just here to say it's a legitimate conundrum. A lot of the let her run activists will tell you there's nothing but bigotry and bad science on the side of restricting her. Oh, there's that. There's a lot of that too. But there's a legitimate quandary at stake. And there are those who would be harmed. The non-DSD athletes who have no way of running faster. And it's not because they're not trying. And it's not because their limbs aren't properly structured or their ankle width isn't optimal or they don't have maximally efficient strides. It's because the matter flowing through their veins is different from the matter flowing through the veins of their competitors. Their competitors have an advantage that those prohibited from running in their events would have, i.e. men. If there are categories of men's sports and women's sports, it is logical to think there needs to be some definition. Otherwise, men can define themselves as women and play women's sports and dominate. This, by the way, is exactly happening on the high school level in Connecticut. The top two girls sprinters are in the process of transitioning and they're also dominating their sport. I do think, though, that there may be more of a societal cost to bar those girls from the races, to bar Castor Semenya or make her take drugs to be less fast. There might be a higher societal cost in doing that than just in letting them run. Maybe the best argument is to say to the fourth or fifth place non-DSD runner, hey, Castor Semenya is faster than you. Get over it. And by the way, that's exactly the position of the United States best 800 meter runner, Aji Wilson. She says she has little chance of beating Castor Semenya, but she supports Castor Semenya being in her races. On the other hand, Great Britain's best 800 meter runner, Lindsay Sharp, disagrees. After the Olympics, she said there were two different races being held that day. Sharp, by the way, wrote her law dissertation on the subject of hyperandrogenism. So why is Castor Semenya faster? Well, nothing she did, or really everything she did, but nothing she did wrong. Maybe having these really fast women who have hyperandrogenism is fine, because in barring these really fast women, you'd have to agree to a lie, either that they're not women or that they're not naturally fast. Maybe the rule should be, if you believe in these sort of things, hey, how did God make you? Oh, that way? Good. You can run. The rules of sports are inadequate to the moment because the rules of society are as well. I know the side that most people who I socialize with want me to take. In fact, to even consider the conundrum invites charges of bigotry. But I think to deny the conundrum is intellectually dishonest. I'm more afraid of knowingly embracing the latter, even if it means that I will be smeared a little bit as the former. (music) 
That's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. True gist story. Had soup today. Oh, it doesn't end there. Daniel asked me, is it a roux base? I'd say, I'd regret it if it were roux. I would roux the roux. To which June Thomas, senior managing producer of the Slate Podcast Network, says, what if RuPaul had the same attitude? To which I said, you'd have to ask her. Roo? Roo, roo? To which TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcast, said, what if that were the name of a French street? Oh. To which I said, you mean Roo? Roo, roo, roo? The gist. Are you Roo, 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 roo? Me too. Oom-peru-de-peru-de-peru, and thanks for listening.